broadcasting under the night sky from the edge of an undisclosed jungle on the Gulf of Mexico. I'm Christopher Garitano, your voice in the night. For the next hour, allow me to be your guide into the bizarre unknown, the fantastic macabre, and together we'll journey to that borderland between fiction and reality, a place beyond all rational explanation. We are now off to the witch. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Off to the Witch newsletter number four. So I survived the hurricane, uh, unscathed once again, hopefully uh, knock on wood. I either moved to a place that doesn't have a constant barrage of hurricanes, or they keep missing me, which is good. So I just returned from Fort Worth, Texas, from Josh Turner's Paranormal Roundtable cryptid, dogman, and overall paranormal conference. I had a fantastic time. I, um, you know, in all the years I've been doing uh, television and documentaries, I really haven't had a chance to connect with fans or just people who might be new to my work at some of these things. I was on one project to another and um, really spending most of that time working. This weekend opened my eyes to how valuable uh, connecting with the live audience is, you know, showing your work off, having discussions. Uh, so many uh, lovely souls over at this convention, not only the people that were running it, but um, people that I ran into there that uh, knew of the things I've done in the past and came there to hear me speak, or brand new uh, fans who were alerted to my work that weekend. All of it was fantastic, and I got to hear a variety of of perspectives. Well, one of the subjects of the convention was Bigfoot. And uh, as much as I love that subject, I was really welcoming uh, some some voices in regard to the dogman or even werewolves. As many suggest, this phenomenon that people people have witnessed these things over the years, that werewolves might exist. And um, there was an incident way back, and I, I read about in Linda Godfrey's book, Real Wolfman, True Counters in Modern America. And there was one story in particular of a security guard named Mark Shackleman. This was an incident that took place at the St. Coletta Institution in 1936. Mark Shackleman took this story to his grave, but revealed it shortly before his own death. And he claimed that while patrolling as a night watchman, around the perimeter of the institution, he raised, he heard a strange noise and he raised his flashlight and saw some kind of man beast, half dog or half wolf and half man. And I love that um, Linda Gottfried referred to a book that I was obsessed with when I was a kid and it was called The Golden Book of the Mysterious. Um, there were illustrations in there by a Tolkien illustrator and some of the best illustrations I've ever seen, but they scared the hell out of me when I was a kid. You know, I'd look at these things, I'd fixate on them. If you can get a copy of that book, it, it I think it would really was my first doorway into the unknown. Outside of fiction and outside of motion pictures, I carried this book around with me. And it covered a variety of mysteries, everything from the Loch Ness Monster to ghost stories to, you know, everything I have an interest in today. And um, to me... The display in that book, or even the way Linda Gottfried told tales in her books, is the epitome 
of this type of storytelling and this type of research, in my opinion. You know, the, the antithesis to that is how it was changed into a game show in the last 20 years for TV. That doesn't mean that um, it's permanently that way. You know, I'm, I'm doing my best to uh, make a change and go back to, I think, a foundation that truly works and at the same time bringing something original to the table. And I know other independent uh, movie makers and storytellers are in a variety of formats, too. So it's, it's an exciting future for um, the paranormal. And one thing that I've seen lately that really, uh, in regard to Shackleman's story, and the way Shackleman took this whole thing to his grave, is that now the opposite is happening. People are telling these tales, and they're telling them also in a variety of formats, whether it be on TV or going to these conventions. And uh, I just want to read an excerpt from Linda Godfrey's book, It'll give you an idea of how profoundly affected Shackleman was and that he confided in his son on his deathbed. He took this whole story to his grave. And, you know, it makes you wonder why on earth would this man even tell the tale if he wasn't profoundly affected? It reminds me of the tale that Roosevelt, Theodore Roosevelt, told in regard to an old frontiersman, Bauman, who may have also encountered one of these these man beasts, you know, for a while, I think people are referring to Bigfoot, but whatever this was, according to Bauman, killed, viciously murdered his friend. And as Bigfoot stories go, they're not really known to do these things. So this could have been something else. My fascination always is how the world of the mystical or the fictional world is clashing with our real world. And so when that happens, we're programmed to not tell the tale uh, because most people for such a long time were worried about being institutionalized in a place like the St. Coletta Institute. So let me read you this, um, this excerpt from Linda Godfrey's book. It's fantastic if you get a chance to pick it up. It's called Real Wolfman, True Encounters in Modern America. Okay. And this is in regard to um, Shackleman taking this story with him his entire life and not telling a soul until he was on his deathbed. And it wrote, And for many years the only person Mark had told about his encounter was his wife Flora, who asked him to never speak of it to anyone. In 1958, Mark Shackleman developed an esophageal hernia that ruptured and required surgery. Believing death was imminent and his wife had passed away several years earlier, he told his son Joe that he wanted to get a big secret off his chest. He then told Joe the story of his nightmarish St. Coletta encounter. Joe Shackleman was a journalist and the editor of the Labor Paper in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And he took notes, as would any good reporter. He even made a sketch of the beast, working on try after try with his father, who continued to correct Joe's artwork until it satisfied him. Mark survived until 1974 when he died at age 71 from phlebitis. And Joe protected his father's secret for several more decades. Joe Shackleman, like his father, had kept the story mostly to himself, telling only a few family members in all that time. And Joe absolutely believed his father was truthful. Mark Shackleman, a devout Catholic and a former heavyweight boxer, was not the type given to telling tall tales. Joe could not have guessed that his father's experience would prove a bellwether event that decades later could be seen as the start of a long cavalcade of unknown canine appearances 
not just across Wisconsin, but far beyond. And of course, this, this over the years and throughout the world and throughout history, this is obviously not the only time somebody has claimed to have seen something like this. But what's unique about this is that uh, people were forced to keep quiet um, in the fear of being ridiculed or even institutionalized. Now, this weekend at the convention, I met a lot of people that, including Josh Turner, Wolf, uh, who really had an experience. You know, I believe him. This is a guy who did not need to tell this tale. He wasn't trying to sensationalize it to make money. He was making a really good living before that, uh, before he started all of this. And, it, and it's more so a labor of love for him and a, uh, a passion because he really did have an experience when he was younger. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. But I believe him when he tells me the tale that he saw these things and just about every other person. So the question is, what are these people seeing? You know, a, um, a smug skeptic who's committed to that perspective, who a very closed, narrow hallway of thinking might say that they either saw something else or they hallucinated or they made it up. But why is that your first propensity to just dismiss what someone is telling you, especially never doing the research? Um, and a lot of these people really just work extra time to disprove things that people are saying. Now, if you've spent your entire life in uh, an artificial room, in other words, in front of computers, in front of your cell phone, uh, listening to garbage music, watching garbage movies, having no stimulation whatsoever outside of uh, someone else's theories that were either written down or spoken or watching YouTube or something, that you have no real life stimulation. But it seems like a lot of the people that see these things uh, are out there in the wilderness. That's when they're encountered. They're in the real world. And it's an odd misconception that the real world is the artificial world. Not to get too metaphysical on this newsletter, but if you pay attention to everything around you, let's say you're living in a metropolis, everything around you is artificial. There is not one thing that's real outside of perhaps the trees that were brought in into, you know, Central Park or wherever. Um, everything you're looking at, the skyscrapers, the vehicles, the computers, your clothes, <laughs> most of the personalities, everything's fake. Everything around you is manufactured. And it's not until you step into the great unknown, whether it be uh, the wilderness, the oceans, you know, and who knows? I mean, there's a greater unknown out there that none of us have really explored. I mean, an extremely small percentage have gone beyond the atmosphere and into space. Uh, and that might be the future for humanity. We're on the precipice of so many incredible things happening, and we've yet to have either confirmed or explored, most of us, the world we're standing on, the soil and what's beneath it, and what's around us, and what's in the oceans. I think we've shortchanged ourselves. And so to keep an open mind at the fact that there are so many things in history that we just don't understand. And science has certainly been able to identify so much. And I also think it's um, a mistake on the part of people who are so immersed in the supernatural that they disregard science and all the work that went into it. So if you look at anthropology and you look at biology, you look at quantum physics, those things should be taken into consideration as well, especially if you're a true researcher and a true observer. It takes a number of years. 
But one thing that I do, as uh, just as a, a curious gentleman myself, and a documentarian, and a filmmaker, and also a writer of fiction, is that I listen. I listen to people when they tell me stories, and um, I'm very excited to hear more of these. I heard them here and there throughout the weekend, not only at the lectures, but personally from other people. And um, I heard a variety, everything from werewolf-like or dogman encounters. I mean, some people are fearful of that taboo word werewolf, but um, I mean, I think it applies in a lot of these situations. You know, are werewolves real? I don't know. I've never seen one, but I'm going to tell you about a, an experience I had in a dream that was perhaps one of the most profound dreams I'll ever have. And it was about a traditional werewolf transformation. And obviously, you know, I, um, you know, you as a steady listener of this show, uh, you must have an open mind. And that's all I ask for from anyone is just keep an open mind. Yeah, there are people that make up stories for sure. And there are also people that have delusions and they're quite impressed by uh, motion pictures. I was growing up. The one thing I have to say, though, is and, and one of the most profound uh, encounters I had, and I've told this story on the show a couple of times, was with what I thought was a ghost. And I entered that experience with a head full of ghost stories. And so I ask that question to anybody that claims they've seen something in the woods that's out of the ordinary or supernatural, is that did you, were you aware of these things first in cinema in documentaries, you know, shows like In Search Of, Unsolved Mysteries, and anything that came after that. I think it's important to keep in mind that Shackleman had his experience in 1938. The Lon Chaney Jr. Wolfman story didn't occur until 1941. So even if you might suggest, hey, you know, he had it in his head, he had just seen the Universal Monsters movie. No, it came after. And um, these stories were told throughout history. So um, there were uh, Anne Celine and Ron Murphy had put on a fantastic presentation. And I wouldn't say it was outright skeptical. It was more historical and it had a very sober perspective on different werewolf-type encounters. Uh, everything from the Beast of Gévaudan in the 1700s to a strange and terrible wonder. And that was a story of a giant devil dog that attacked a church and there are a lot of historical accounts to support it. Even centuries later, there was in the very same area the skeleton of a giant dog found interred in the ground. And again, these stories are out there. You can dig and find them and find credibility to them. So that's what I look at. And if, if people were to say, well, do you believe in werewolves? Perhaps I do. I don't know. You know, um, there's a lot of evidence, historical evidence to support that some strange incident did happen. We, we have a strange desire because we obsess over our fiction. Everything from alien invasion movies to movies about transformation to even crime epics, right? But if you really think about it, none of us would ever want to live it. I mean, I've been to uh, horror movie conventions, not unlike the, uh, the cryptid convention that I went to, but more about macabre cinema. And you have everything from like little kids to generations of adults celebrating these movie monster killers or slasher films. I mean, there are literal plush dolls of Jason and Freddy and stuff like that. And if you boil it down, these are like really horrible murderers and 
child killers and stuff, but people celebrate them as if they're uh, Bugs Bunny. And I don't think anyone ever takes the time out to question, because I love those movies too, by the way, so I'm not smashing them, but what I'm saying is you don't want to live those movies. That's a very different reality. So we all have this cathartic experience, I suppose, from reading the mysteries from a safe distance. But do you really want to come face to face with a werewolf? An American Werewolf in London, rated R. Under 17, not admitted without parents. This series presents information based in part on theory and conjecture. The producer's purpose is to suggest some possible explanations, but not necessarily the only ones to the mysteries we will examine. cinema, probably from the birth of the motion picture, pretty close to the silent era. In one way or another, they were portrayed. Everything from the silent motion picture Haxon and even Nosferatu going forward into the universal horror pictures. And, um, you know, this is something that existed before the motion picture. It was in literature and it was in recorded history as well. It was in culture. And um, it evolves throughout history. I would say there's a great handful of horror films that regard the werewolf and some really unique ones as they were when they first came out. The original Wolfman from Universal Pictures. And um, going forward, some of my favorites are John Landis's American Werewolf in London, which when I saw as a kid, it literally blew me away and gave me nightmares. It convinced me that a werewolf could be real because you had this kind of very, um, you had a, a realistic but humorous perspective uh, on somebody's dark journey. And it knew all the right beats to hit in cinema. Um, David Naughton played a character named David Kessler. He's on a backpacking trip with his buddy Jack, played by Griffin Dune. And they're walking along the countryside in England, they come across a pub and there's a uh, five-pointed star on the wall. They call it out to the people in the pub who are pretty cold and distant and that really sets them off and they end up walking along the moors at night. 
it's during a full moon for those of you who haven't seen this movie and one of the creepiest werewolf howls in cinema history is heard and they're being stalked by one of these devil dogs I don't want to ruin the rest of the movie for you if you haven't seen it. And if you have seen it, you know it's a wild ride after that. And I would ask that of any motion picture because it's intelligent. The humor isn't stupid. It's the worst when you're watching any kind of movie from any genre and it gets really dumb. I can't sit through it. But this was, an, this was from a place of intelligence. If the humor is well blended with some reality and some true drama. You know, there were moments in American World from London that were quite depressing and very real. There were fantastic performances throughout, but the humor hit just right. Like humor in life, when it's mixed in just right, there are, there are moments of irony. Um, and that's why that movie worked so well. Others are uh, The Howling by Joe Dante. And there are aspects that came later. I think even the remake uh, of The Wolfman with Benicio Del Toro was, was quite good. There was a 1980s television show called Werewolf that's kind of out of print right now. I think you could find episodes on YouTube. That was great growing up seeing that. Great special effects. Uh, but there weren't too many. There Another one, you know, a, a unique one written by Whitley Strieber was Wolfen. And it was in, it took place in a city and it was, it was another unique perspective of these giant, you know, wolves. And there was Native American, uh, Indian folklore mixed in with the whole thing. I thought that was fantastic. You know, these, these are certainly some things to check out, but I grew up watching all of these movies and to assume now that, um, in my adult life, Whereas when, he, when I was a kid, you know, I believed these things were real because the, those movies that I just mentioned were so convincing and terrifying that I would have nightmares that in my adult life, I realized, you know, these things aren't real. There's no way I'm ever going to see a werewolf. And now I'm at a convention uh, where I would say maybe 70 to 80% of the people there believe, either believe that werewolves are real or quite possibly real. Some of them won't use the W word. They'll say dogman, but um, I don't know. Where do these things come from? I've heard a variety of explanations. Everything from claiming these are just like the werewolves that you see in the movies to uh, this is some other entity created by the government. We don't know, but it's, um, it's an interesting time that we live in to think that we might find out at some point and confirm that some of this stuff is real. I mean, you know, take a take a look at the the local news lately. Uh, they're confirming that um, little green men and flying saucers are real. You know, most of us believed through understanding of probability that there is life outside of our solar system, or perhaps even within it. You know, outside of Earth. Um, but probability tells you that it's it's beyond true that that the fact that there are probably billions of planets with life on it and billions of planets with life just like Earth or slight variations of is highly probable, if not, you know, just, just through probability, it's true. So we've been lied to. Um, for what reason, I'm not exactly sure. And it's, um, it's quite exciting to think that our consciousness is going to change once we find out all of this is true. Were we prepped by so-called fiction all this time? 
And is the supernatural world real? And were we kept in this artificial environment just to distract us from it? And was all of this stuff put into our fiction and folklore to help distract us one way or another, right? I'm not sure what the reasoning was, to keep us away from the world of the mystical. We've celebrated it through fiction, but I mean, people are going to these conventions and droves. Um, independent writers are making these books and sharing information. They've broken past the monopoly, past the place of the people who claim they're gatekeepers, which they're not, past the point of people who claim they hold the key to allowing you to share knowledge with other people. That no longer exists. Now you can do that yourself. It's a glorious time, really. Now, you know, what I suggest is if you're going to share knowledge, now put the time in. It's all up to you on what you do. So I wanted to share this uh, dream experience with you. I, um, this was only a few years ago, and this is a werewolf dream. I um, had many years, like I said, in a head full of werewolf stories, even in music, you know, everything from Ozzy Osbourne's Bark at the Moon album. I would fixate on that album cover, listen to that song, werewolf stories in movies and movies and reading books as a kid. And, you know, it was one of the most fascinating dynamics to uh, a horror story, in my opinion, or a paranormal story was the fact that a human being could change into something else. And in the case of the werewolf, it always seemed to be portrayed as a conflicted character. You were the opposite. It was a metaphor for your own uncontrollable rage, like a Jekyll and Hyde tale, but worse. Now you turn into this ravenous creature and you're out there destroying other lives and, uh, you know, in, in, in a lot of portrayals very brutally. Uh, it was it was such a scary thing. So there was one night uh, when I was sleeping and... Um, you know, I'm next to my girlfriend at the time. It's the middle of the night. And again, I don't have experiences like this all the time. This was once in my life. I remember the dream vividly. Um, I walked into this long hallway. You know, geography is very strange in my dreams. I, I can compare it to cinema. If you've anyone's ever seen Sidney Lumet's The Wiz, the way things change and twist in the city streets and the buildings are all wrecked. It's the only thing I can compare it to. A lot of my dreams are like that. They're very bizarre. So um, so I'm in this room and it's elongated. And this is like traditional cinema werewolf stuff. I'm looking out the window. Dark clouds are passing by a full moon. There's this kind of dilapidated sink. All right. And there's a mirror. And some cracks are in the mirror. I'm holding the sink. I'm looking into the mirror. And I feel all of my muscles tensing up completely to the point where they are um, they're cramping and tensing and squeezing my body is contorting and i start to feel my teeth moving i mean it was powerful i've never felt that kind of power in a um, in a dream you know i can often fly in my dreams i can float i can move around it's something that i can do all the time get away from a scenario, I'll float away and move away from it. Um, but I never had this experience. And so I can see the moon in the reflection of the mirror from the window, right? It's behind me. And I'm squeezing onto the edge of this sink. My nails are growing. My teeth are growing right out of a werewolf transformation scene and any of my favorites. But I felt this. I felt my bones breaking and reforming. I felt 
my body tensing and moving, and I screamed in the dream. So ultimately, I'm watching myself transform in the mirror, and I'm screaming at the top of my lungs. And then I wake up, and my girlfriend at the time was shaking me. And, you know, they're like, because I, she's like, no, you were, you were making noises, you were screaming, you were grabbing onto the blankets, you were kicking. Uh, whatever this was affected me so bad. I woke up in this, you know, covered in sweat. I don't know what that was. I don't know why I had it. Obviously, a perspective like this, th that humans can transform, have affected human beings probably throughout human history, this connection with our animal connection, you know, this evolutionary connection, perhaps. Um, our DNA, what are we connected to? Sometimes that animal side comes out. Of course, it influences us in some ways from day to day. We still have that animal in us. And that's what was coming through. And so after that, I just uh, hoped I didn't have another dream like that because as, as fascinating as it was, it, well, I do not welcome that experience again. It was quite intense to say the least. So um, werewolves. I hope I never run into one, to tell you the truth. It's not even for the sake of writing a good book about it. I mean, I can contemplate, I can interview people. I do not want to run into a werewolf, um, especially if that's what killed Bauman's uh, trapping buddy in the Theodore Roosevelt story, you know? Sounds more like it to me. Doesn't sound like a Bigfoot, especially when Roosevelt described the puncture wounds in, his, in Bauman's friend's neck and this thing that was making this god-awful howl. Sounds like something right out of a werewolf film. But we'll never know. All we have is that chapter in Roosevelt's story um, uh, in his book, The Wilderness Hunter, in the Cowboy Land chapter. Fantastic short story, um, but I don't believe we'll ever find out exactly what happened. But if you get a chance, check out any of the variety of books being written on the subject, everything from Josh Turner's uh, new book uh, to the Linda Gottfried book that I told you about. Um, and there were some good people there, like Nick Redfern, who recently wrote a book on werewolves. And, um, and so, you know, a variety of other people that you can find good literature on the subject. They do their homework and they do their research. And all they really have to go on, honestly, is stories and historical accounts, or even eyewitness accounts. Um, but uh, fascinating subject that we live in a world where maybe in the past the supernatural was believed by most, and then after a while it was it was put aside. It was put aside for the artificial world that we created, this world that we created uh, of, of technology and structures and false ideas, really, that that don't match to our reality. We created a reality. And we're going to continue to do that too, especially when this, this matrix is actually built. It's coming. It's, it's being constructed as we speak. So once you enter the matrix, everything is real, right? I mean, like if you can't see a werewolf in real life, you're going to see it in there. If you can't be a superhero in real life, you'll see it in there and you'll experience it with all five senses, or perhaps a, a generated sixth all within the matrix. Um, we live in amazing times in that regard. And if we live to see that stuff, for me, that's exciting. I, uh, because it was all the fiction I grew up on, all the things that drove me to become a movie maker and a writer. Um, and you'll get to experience a lot of that tech and a lot of that uh, fiction that was isolated. But 
Unfortunately, all the good and exciting and imaginative comes along with the bad, and we're going to experience that too. Um, and it's all how you perceive it, I suppose. You could be grateful that you're getting this amazing variety of life and uh, to take it with you, you know, take the lessons with you onto the next plane. If you just wanted a life of simplicity, you're probably in the wrong place. So a uh, quick word on um, a screenplay I'm writing right now. You know, I have a lot of projects happening and it does regard uh, the werewolf story. I think it's not a werewolf movie. I'm not writing a werewolf movie, but there is something like that in my film, Bury Me in a Nameless Grave. And I'm not going to say what it is right now, but I would say it's the most unique take you can imagine on the subject. And uh, I'm excited to portray it in cinema. It's one aspect of one character in the film, but certainly not the main aspect. However, I am excited to portray this. I see it vividly. And um, my goal in cinema is um, to give the audience an, ex an experience, not unlike the experience I had growing up during my formative years, I was blown away by movies. Uh, so blown away that I dedicated my life to wanting to make them and making them. And so uh, I, I want to give the audience that same feeling. There are a lot of different camps dabbling in the, uh, the visual uh, communication world. But motion pictures have been around long before the internet. They're over 100 years old. And they'll be around long after the internet as you know it has dissipated and turned into something else. So as much as I enjoy a lot of the YouTube projects that are out there, that is not cinema. And that is not my ambition in life. Uh, my ambition of motion pictures, you know, when you're making a motion picture, sometimes requires years to make. It's not something you can bang out in a week or a day. And so, and, and we're not chasing an algorithm either. It really is just what you want it to be. And yes, you know, you have some rules and parameters when you have investors, but usually the movie maker is fighting for that vision, always. I mean, I did with my television shows. I pitched Strange World. I was constantly fighting to retain the vision that I had for it. Um, you can watch all eight episodes of that show. Uh, if you seek it out on YouTube, just type in my last name, G-A-R-E-T-A-N-O, and write in Strange World and you'll find it. So yeah, Bury Me in a Nameless Grave is uh, something I'll end up making within the next year or so. I'm busy right now finishing up the two feature-length episodes of my new series, and each of them are specials. This is what I decided to do then to kind of rush and cram a whole series just for the sake of doing it. They're um, feature-length specials. The first one is A Haunting We Will Go. It's very close to being finished. And the next one is tentatively titled Monsters Among Us, and it's a completely different subject matter. And it, it covers a fantastic history throughout the world, but mainly focusing in the, the environment of modern Florida of killer gators and crocs. It's something I wanted to cover for a very long time. It's savage and primal and very informative, and I can't wait to show it to you. It's about 75 to 85% shot. And um, have a few more things I have to shoot, and that'll be completed. Uh, my book, South Texas Blues, is going to be published very soon. I have the proof here, just looking it over and making some final refinements. And um, that is currently being looked at by a major network and a co-production company 
and we're in development for it to be a limited series. And before that happens, and it goes through the restructuring process for something of that length, I wanted to publish the screenplay as I wrote it. It's a 160 page screenplay. It's been around for a while. And um, it was published first in Fangoria Magazine in 2012 as a comic strip. Uh, Trevor Cook, fantastic artist, I asked him to join me and adapt my screenplay into this comic. We did complete one book and maybe we will complete it all, but I was no longer interested. And this really is just the crazy summer that director Toby Hooper made the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, one of the most infamous motion pictures ever. And what happened on that set throughout the summer? That's the, the basic premise, but there's a lot more to it. It's very surreal, very cerebral, and it's quite an original take on a historical event. But, um, you know, my dream project are all of these things. However, it's all leading to this script I'm writing called Bury Me in a Nameless Grave. It's a very metaphysical, very cerebral, dark, exciting, comedic, satirical, all of those things at once because I want to give the audience a thrill. I don't, I, you know, I'm making exactly what I want to make, but I've always had the desire to give you a great time one way or another. I feel like I'm completely shortchanging myself and work if I don't. And um, being that I've been an audience member all my life and I have good taste and I love these things, I know what I love and I know what I want to give you. Even with Off to the Witch, I have big plans for the show. And so uh, in the forthcoming weeks, there'll be a bunch of new episodes and a lot of um, intertwined projects with Off to the Witch. That was my goal from the beginning. I wanted to create something that was constant. And the Audible podcast is that for me. Uh, once again, I'm doing these newsletters every other week because I've been so busy forging all of these other and finishing all of these other projects. Uh, so if you have any questions for me, I'm always happy to hear from you. I'm going to be creating a Patreon so we can communicate better. And um, it's going to be really cheap, literally like the cost of a basic cup of coffee a month. And I'm going to offer so much. There'll be everything from behind the scenes of all of the new movies and documentaries and shows to um, live streams, to radio, talk radio type chats. I have a lot of things planned. Access to all of my past work will be in there as well. And um, I'll keep these newsletters going once we go back to a regular weekly schedule. We're currently on a bi-weekly. So I, um, I just want to thank uh, uh, Josh Turner and uh, his family and all of the people that put on the conference this weekend, I had such a wonderful time. I want to thank all of the people that approached me and came up to me. I mean, I signed some autographs. I didn't think anyone was even going to know who I was there because it was so specific. But lo and behold, there were some fans there and I got to talk with them. It's something I never had a chance to do because I was always on the road making shows. And um, I am happy to do these in the future. I think what I'll do is take A Haunting We Will Go or at least scenes from it around and scenes from Monsters Among Us and talk about these new projects as I go along. So stay tuned for next week's episode with a brand new guest, and I will catch you later.